This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Breast cancer is the most common type of malignancy in women and very treatable when detected early. Therefore, early detection becomes very important as it significantly reduces a patient's risk of developing metastases and eventual death. Breast imaging can find breast cancer much sooner than it can be palpated and therefore plays an extremely important role in the detection of early breast cancer. But it's not as simple as it used to be. We now have several methods of breast imaging available, each with its advantages and disadvantages. And to help us sort these out, we have as our guest, a breast disease specialist, Dr. Christina Delivery from the Mayo Breast Diagnostic Clinic. Christina, thank you for being here and welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Well, I want to get to all of the new imaging techniques, but I want to hear some answers to a couple of questions that my patients keep asking me. All the different types of mammography, 2D, 3D, digital, tomosynthesis. Can you sort those out for us? Absolutely. So a mammogram is an x-ray of the breast. We compress the breast between a plastic paddle and an imaging detector. We have to compress the breast in order to smooth the breast tissue out so that the tissue doesn't overlap and obscure any detail within the breast. Digital mammogram versus traditional mammogram. So in the past, all imaging, whether it was mammogram or other x-rays, were all film images. So the vast majority of facilities nowadays are all doing digital images. So that's what a digital mammogram is. So a traditional 2D mammogram takes two pictures of each breast. There's a top-down picture called the craniocaudal view. So it smashes the breast up and down. And then there's a side-by-side view called the medial lateral oblique, which goes from side to side. And between those two pictures, you can localize something within the breast. Tomosynthesis and 3D mean the same thing. The same imaging technique, just two different terms for that. And essentially what they're doing is the radiologist is still doing the same two views of each breast, but then the camera is rotating in an arc over the breast as it takes the pictures. And so it takes multiple pictures from different angles of the breast. And then the computer back in the radiology area compiles all of those pictures together. And then they can take, get a 3D picture of the breast basically. And so then the radiologist can shift through those pictures and look for any lesions that might be overlapping on the mammogram. Got it. Nice and clear. Thank you. Now, Before we get to the other breast imaging, what's the difference between a screening and a diagnostic mammogram? When we order one, we're asked that, and I've often wondered, is one different than the other? Sometimes they start out as the same imaging test. So a screening mammogram is intended for a patient who has no symptoms. So a screening mammogram is really those two basic sets of pictures on each breast, and then the patient goes off. So patient with a screening mammogram is intended to have no symptoms. It's just to screen each breast to look to see if there is anything that catches the eye of the radiologist. And then if they see something, they bring the patient back. A diagnostic mammogram is if there's a clinical concern, either something was seen on the screening mammogram or the patient has a symptom. And so the diagnostic mammogram often can start with the same two pictures that the screening mammogram does, 
but then there are specialized views, mammographic views that the radiologist can use. So they can do magnification pictures, they can do spot compression, they can do what are called rolled views or exaggerated views. This is when they can add ultrasound in. And so the whole idea of diagnostic is they're diagnosing a clinical concern. Got it. I had a patient once request a screaming mammogram. <laughs> Aren't they know. all screaming mammograms? I, I <laughs> have never had one, so I couldn't say, but I, anyway. All right, so let's try some of the other modalities. When is an ultrasound used? I think the best utility of an ultrasound is when there's a clinical concern. So if there's an abnormality on the screening slash diagnostic mammogram, then the radiologist will often utilize an ultrasound to determine if there is an abnormality underlying that detected abnormality on the mammogram. And then if there is a clinical concern, either a symptom that the patient is having or something that you feel on your clinical exam. So a targeted ultrasound in an area where a patient has focal pain, you feel a lump, if they're having nipple discharge, if you think you feel adenopathy, targeted ultrasound is incredibly useful. So they're really focusing on a particular abnormality that we're concerned about. Are they of any value in screening purposes? For different facilities, they do utilize whole breast screening ultrasound. I would say here at Mayo, we don't utilize whole breast screening ultrasound. There are two techniques for whole breast screening ultrasound. There's handheld, and then there's actually an automated machine for whole breast ultrasound. There is an incremental cancer detection rate with doing whole breast ultrasound in women who have dense breast tissue. It's not a lot. And you have to compare that with the false positive rates. So whole breast ultrasound has a really high false positive rate. So up to potentially one in three women who get a whole breast ultrasound will come back for some additional imaging, potentially a biopsy, and it's not cancer. Here at Mayo, we do other breast imaging in women who have dense tissue because the false positive rates, the yields are better. But in some communities, whole breast ultrasound is the only additional supplemental screening tool that they have. And so that is what they use. Okay. One issue that we see a fair, fairly often is the mammogram that comes back saying the patient has extremely dense breast tissue and uh, that that decreases the sensitivity of the mammogram. Where do we go from there? Dense breast tissue is common. So up to 50% of women have dense breast tissue. I have this conversation with a lot of patients. It's not an abnormality. It is more common in young women. It can be related to genetics and hormonal status, but some women as they age never lose that dense breast tissue. Dense breast tissue definitely does decrease the sensitivity of the mammogram. So many women, not all women, but many women who end up with a false negative mammogram often have dense breast tissue. So women who have dense breast tissue often need to have a conversation about, are they a candidate for some type of supplemental imaging? Not instead of imaging, but supplemental or in additional screening imaging. And how do we decide which women are candidates for that? So a lot of times what we're, what we try to look at is what is their risk for breast cancer? And, and we, in the breast clinic here, we use that to try to determine what is their best option for supplemental imaging. We look at their family history. We look at their personal history of any prior breast biopsies. 
there are risk calculators to calculate their risk of breast cancer. We look to see if they've ever been diagnosed with a genetic mutation, if they've ever been diagnosed with a precancerous breast biopsy. We use all of that information to determine if just a mammogram is adequate, if molecular breast imaging is a good option for them, or if they qualify for breast MRI. Okay. So let's talk about those two techniques. Let's start with uh, molecular breast imaging. What are we actually doing in molecular breast imaging? How does it work? Molecular breast imaging is a physiologic or functional study of the breast. So what we are doing with molecular breast imaging is we are using a dual head gamma camera to get functional imaging of the breast. We are using technetium cestamibi injected intravenously and then pictures are taken of the breast. And what we are looking for is activity that goes to tumors in the breast with the cestamibi, basically. So it's a functional study of the breast that doesn't depend upon the breast density. So the technetium cestamibi is going to preferentially go to these active areas in the breast. So it doesn't matter what the density is. The patient is given the injection of these technetium cestamibi, and then the images are taken right away. It's the same two images that we do of each breast, just like with a mammogram. It is much less compression, but the imaging lasts longer. So I tell patients it's like a kinder, gentler mammogram. And then the radiologist reviews the imaging to look for any areas of increased activity in the breast. And if we do see that, then the patient is sent for additional imaging to work that up. So it picks up some abnormalities often missed by mammography because of the dense breast tissue. Is that correct? That is correct. And because of the injection, the radiation involved and the cost, it probably doesn't make it the ideal screening test then, does it? We don't do it by itself. So the idea is that it is supplemental. So the, the idea of, of molecular breast imaging is that it is to be added to the annual screening mammogram. Cost of molecular breast imaging is about equal to the cost of a screening mammogram. If the indication put on there is increased breast density, the majority of insurance companies are now starting to cover it. This is improved over, say, four to five years ago when the vast majority of insurance companies considered it an experimental test. It is FDA approved, but insurances are slow on the uptick of covering newer tests. The amount of radiation with the test is about equal to a mammogram with tomosynthesis. So it is actually a fairly small amount of radiation. They have worked really diligently to get the amount of radiation down. However, that radiation is more whole body because the, the injection is whole body, but the, the body does get rid of that radiation. Excellent. All right. So what about MRI? When would that be considered? We really think about breast MRI in women who have dense tissue and, and elevated risk. So what counts as elevated risk? So there's really a, a nice, you know, well-defined list of what counts as elevated risk. We really kind of consider elevated risk for somebody whose lifetime risk of breast cancer is greater than 20%. Well, you really just can't look at somebody and estimate their risk. We do have calculators that can determine what that risk is. Somebody who has a known genetic mutation automatically has a greater than 20% lifetime risk. So it's not just BRCA gene mutation carriers anymore. With the advent of multi-gene panel testing, we know about multiple other gene mutations now. And so most patients who do gene testing are tested for these other gene mutations. And there are probably about 10 really high-risk genes that we know of that patients definitely qualify to do annual MRIs. 
if patients have family history, that's when we do the risk calculators. Um, so the most common one we use is called IBIS or Tyracusic. That's the one that if you calculate the risk and it's greater than 20%, that's when insurance will cover the breast MRI. Patients who've had chest radiation before the age of 30, so patients who've had prior lymphoma and had mantle radiation before the age of 30 are at higher risk of breast cancer. And so we usually start doing their MRIs about seven to 10 years after they had that chest radiation. And then patients who have a history of a precancerous biopsy, so atypical hyperplasia, lobular carcinoma in situ, most of our data shows us that, that their risk over the next 15, 20 years is at least 20 to 25%. And so they typically qualify as well. So patients who fit into those categories should all have a discussion about, is it worth the pros and cons uh, of a breast MRI? Now you mentioned that molecular breast imaging is complementary to mammography. Is a breast MRI a standalone test or does that, should that be used with mammography? Very good question. So it should be done in addition to mammography. We, we get this question a lot from our patients who are doing breast MRIs on. So breast MRI is about 97 to 100% sensitive for invasive breast cancer. Well, there's also non-invasive breast cancer called DCIS. It's not as sensitive for DCIS. Many times DCIS will show up as calcifications on a mammogram. And so for that reason, we do still recommend that patients doing MRIs do, do a mammogram as well. And we're pretty used to having patients get annual mammograms, but let's say they either have an increased risk of breast cancer or they have extremely dense breasts. So we're going to order either molecular breast imaging or an MRI. How often do we do those? Do they get done annually? For patients who are doing breast MRIs, they're usually doing the MRIs annually. Now, some patients do the MRIs annually with their mammograms. Some patients stagger them. So they'll do their mammogram and then six months later, their MRI, and then continue to stagger their exams, essentially leapfrogging their tests. So each test is once a year, but then they're coming in every six months. So we do this on almost all of our gene carriers and especially patients whose calculated risk is quite high. And then for the molecular, breast imaging, there's really not a known optimal interval for molecular breast imaging. For the most part, it's been settled out at every other year. So in addition to annual mammogram, we do the molecular test every other year, but there are times when we have some patients who do it annually. So it's not that you can't do it annually, but usually you want to have a reason for it. So an example I have is I have a, a BRCA carrier that I follow who cannot do an MRI. And so we do her molecular breast imaging test every year in addition to her mammogram. And that was my next question. If we're going to be doing these annually, have patients accepted these tests, especially the MRI? And I've got some patients that really just are fearful of that test and uh, asking them to do something in an MRI machine annually would be challenging. It's definitely a discussion. What I tell most of my high-risk patients is that in the end, these are optional. For me, the absolute bare minimum for my patients is the annual mammogram. There, there definitely are pros and cons to these tests. And both MBIs and MRIs do pick up incremental cancers. So there are cancers that we pick up on these tests that will not be seen on mammograms. What is the downside to both of these exams? False positives. And so for some patients, false positives are a bigger burden then the chance that we might have a delayed cancer diagnosis. For either an MBI or MRI, what does a false positive look like? It means coming in either for an additional ultrasound 
or the worst case scenario is an MRI guided biopsy. And it's the uncertainty of waiting for that is actually going through the procedure. There's cost with that. And, and some patients have had several of these. And so it, it's not an insignificant burden for them to go through that. Breast MRI is not quite as claustrophobic feeling as, as other MRIs. So for breast MRI, patients go in feet first for it. Their head is facing out. They're on their stomach. Um, so it's not quite as bad. Most of the time, they can offer them a little, a little sedation with a little Ativan or a little Xanax with it. But it is still an MRI. It has the, the same contraindications as most other MRIs do. So if it's you know not an MRI compatible pacemaker, they can't have it. If they have implant expanders or if they have other you know metallic artifact in their head, they can't have it. And so in those situations, then the, then the question is, do you consider a molecular breast imaging test? For the most part, if they qualify for MRI, you don't want to substitute an MBI for the MRI. If they qualify for MRI, you want to do the MRI. It has the highest detection rate. If they can't do an MRI for some reason, that's when you might think about the MBI. Okay. Years ago, this has to be at least 12, 15 years ago, I ordered a nuclear cardiac stress test with Sestamibi. It came back, this is before MBI was, mm -hmm. I think, even discovered, came back showing some uptake in uh, the patient's breast and turned out she had a breast cancer. So mm -hmm. I was probably doing one of the first molecular, molecular yeah. breast imaging then. I think that is some of the theory behind MBI. Christina, so what do you see in the future regarding breast imaging? Is there anything new on the horizon? probably the next thing that we may start to see in terms of breast imaging is contrast enhanced digital mammography. It's a technique where we use iodine contrast given at the time of the mammogram. What happens then is the non-contrast enhanced images are subtracted out from the contrast enhanced images. And so then if there is a lesion in the breast, it enhances and is easier to see. It is something that is used more commonly for diagnostic imaging as opposed to screening imaging, though there is more work and studying being done on the screening side of things. It is something being incorporated more for diagnostic imaging in, in our different Mayo sites. And so it's something that we do see on coming more on the horizon. Great. Thank you. Let's summarize. Can you give us maybe two or three key points that uh, summarize our discussion on breast imaging? Absolutely. So I would say dense breast tissue is common. Up to 50% of women have dense breast tissue. So to consider supplemental screening in your patients who have dense breast tissue, for your patients who have an elevated risk of breast cancer, consider supplemental screening with breast MRI. Great. Thank you so much, Christina. We've been My discussing pleasure. breast imaging with Dr. Christina Delaveri, a specialist in breast disease at the Mayo Clinic. Christina, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. It's my pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music